If you're, here in, if you're here with me, I would invite you to turn either in your Bible to Mark 14 or in your bulletin to the same passage. Uh, we'll be looking at this passage for our sermon today. Uh, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, we're now on the last hours of Jesus' life. These are the last things that happened before he was offered up on the cross, before he rose from the dead. In fact, this scene is the very last thing he did with all of his disciples before he died. The very last thing. It's called the Last Supper. Uh, it's both a Passover meal, in a sense the last Passover that Jesus celebrated, and it's the first Lord's Supper, the first time communion was ever given by Jesus to his people. And so we're going to talk about communion this morning. You may notice that the table is not down front today because we are still going to keep our normal schedule and serve communion next Sunday, but I thought to focus on it this week would be a great preparation. And so we're going to be talking about communion this week so that you can go and think about these themes and these verses, preparing your heart for our supper next week in our morning services. Let me read to you starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room that I may eat my Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to, want to him one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. 
The first time that I went to Japan, and many of y'all know that I've been to Japan a couple times. Uh, both of those times were right around when I was in college. This first time I was actually a student, and Stacy was a student as well, and went with me with our church as we went on a missions trip over to Japan. And it was an interesting trip because uh, several of us from Tallahassee went, uh, and then a whole group of Christians from Hawaii, this group of about a dozen or more Hawaiian men went on the trip as well. And we gathered together in this suburb of Tokyo called Fusa. And Fusa is famous because it's where the American Air Force Base is, Yokuda Air Force Base. Lots of Americans live there, of course, and lots of people from all around the world live in this neighborhood. It's a very international place. In fact, the church that we were serving is called the International Christian Assembly. That's the name of the church because people from all around the world are there. Well, at the end of our our time, we had a special dinner hosted by a Japanese family in Fusa, and several of us went. It was a large table. The table was full of people, Stacy and I, an older couple from Tallahassee, and all these Hawaiian men, and then these Japanese, this Japanese family. Uh, the oldest man at the table was the grandfather, the Japanese grandfather, and he was very skeptical of Christianity. His, his son had converted, and he was still very much you know, against it. But he had a good time. Uh, You would think, given all those different kinds of people, and uh, of course we don't want to be too stereotypical. People are always different no matter what culture they're from. But, you know, cultures do tend to have a certain flavor about them. And the Japanese culture and the Southern American culture and the Hawaiian culture are very different, to say the least. And you would think that that the supper might not go very smoothly, and yet it did. Uh, By the end of the supper, uh, the grandfather was in tears. I'll never forget it. And through his tears, he says, you know, our world is filled with all kinds of trouble. People can't get along. There's war. This was in 2005, so this was Iraq, Afghanistan. There's war everywhere. Nobody gets along. And yet, there must be either something about Christianity or maybe just something about sharing meals that can bring all the walls down and make people get along at least for that amount of time where they're sitting there. He was crying. Now, don't you know that's true? By the way, I think he was right about both things. There's something about Christianity and about tables, both of them, that take walls down and bring us together. In fact, in Christianity, there is a table. Kind of at the very center of Christianity, there's a table. It's a table that Jesus set in this very scene that we read. Jesus was eager to eat the Passover with his disciples, his last one, the last supper. And yet at that last Passover, he starts a new meal. He establishes a new table that he wants his disciples to carry out till the end of time where he is going to dine with us and us with him and us with each other and all the walls are going to come down and his people are going to be one. Spiritually, that's the Lord's Supper. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning in some some detail. We don't often get to talk in detail about communion. Usually it's a few minutes tacked on to the front of the the supper that we talk about it. This, we're going to get a whole sermon. You ready? Take a look at your bulletin. There are three things in the story, and there's a little bit of a double meaning to the outline today. On, On one hand, it just follows the order Uh, There is a section before the Lord's Supper there in verse 12 to 21. Then there's a section during the Lord's Supper, verses 22 to 25. And then there's a section after 
in verses 26 to 31. But as we go through, I hope you'll see, there's also something for us as Christians that we should be doing before we come to communion, during communion, and even after we leave communion. And I'm going to try to talk you through that as we go through the story. All right, so first of all, let's look at what happens before the Lord's Supper was given. And what we see here, the main thing is preparation was made. Preparation was made. There was a physical and tangible preparation that had to be made. The the physical place and the various amenities had to be arranged for the Passover. But then there was also a spiritual preparation in keeping with the Passover that Jesus wanted them to do. So look first there at verse 12. Uh, 12 and 13, the disciples are, are very confused about how they're going to get things ready for this Passover. Now, you have to ask yourself, why were they so worried about this? They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, how in the world are we ever going to prepare for the Passover meal? And part of us wants to say, well, guys, you're, you're probably 30-something years old, and you've all done the Passover meal every year since you were babies and you don't know how to set the table. You don't know how to rent a room. You don't, you, I mean, what's going on here? And yet we know, because we've been tracking through Mark's gospel, why they're so confused this time. Because they're in Jerusalem, which is where you have to be to celebrate the Passover. And all the powers that be in Jerusalem want Jesus dead. In fact, they don't just want him dead. At this point, they have a plot And that plot is very much in motion already. They know it. They cannot be seen. They cannot cannot go and rent a room in the local hotel because they would have to use their credit card. (laughs) You know, they'd have to put their names down and everybody would be able to trace them as to where they were. And so they go to Jesus. Jesus, how are we going to do this incognito? How are we going to get the lamb? How are we going to get the bread and the various cups of wine that we have to drink and all that? And Jesus says, don't worry, I already got it covered. He sends two of them ahead. Go to the city. You're going to find a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him. He's going to go into a house. When you get in there, say, hey, the teacher wants his room. And the guy's going to say, come on in. I've already got it ready. Now, that's a strange story. Let's just stop right there and just notice Something strange about Jesus and how he sets these things up. Uh, This is the same thing when he came in on the donkey, remember? This was several weeks ago now. He sent two disciples ahead. Go to town, you're going to find a colt tied to a tree. Take it. Somebody's going to ask you, why are you taking it? And you're going to say, the Lord needs it. And they're going to say, okay, go ahead. What does this say about Jesus? You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Huh? Okay. Very important. And this is so very relevant to thinking about the Lord's Supper. At the hour of Jesus' death, Jesus is not just a passive victim of circumstances outside of his control and circumstances that he would never have chosen for himself. He's not like me and you, in other words. To me and you, life just happens to us, and we have very little control over what happens in these types of things, especially violence against us. Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples, no boys, I am willingly setting the stage. Like I am preparing the way before myself to the cross. It's where I want to go. It's where I freely and willingly 
present myself to go for you. Which is what he's aiming to communicate through the bread that he breaks and the wine that he pours out and gives to them. Jesus is in control. He's the master. And yet he willingly presents himself for suffering. The Passover meal is set because Jesus has set it up somehow. And he tells them exactly what they're going to do and they find it exactly as he told them. So that they would get it into their mind when they see Jesus hanging on the cross. And when they see him dead in the tomb, they've got it in their mind. Wait a minute. The story's not over because he was the one writing it all along. Now, secondly, I want you to see this. Still within the first point, but second thing. Jesus wants them to prepare spiritually. See, it's not just a matter of getting bread and getting wine, getting lamb, getting bitter herbs and the little fruit chutney that they used. All the things that are a part of a Seder meal of the Jews. It's not just that. It's they have to come spiritually prepared. Uh, Do you all know what the Passover was all about? What it is all about? Jews still celebrate the Passover, of course. They were spared. That's right. Exactly right. They were spared from slavery. And that that was a part of the service. In fact, uh, it says that when you come in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 13, when you come to, to the Passover, you ought to remember that you used to be in bondage in Egypt and God with a strong arm carried you out. And by the blood of the lamb over the door of your house, you were not killed. God saved you. And when your child asks you, dad, mom, what do you mean by this observance? In other words, why, what is the spiritual meaning of this religious meal? You are to say to them, children, our forefathers were slaves. They were in bondage. And God is a redeemer of those in bondage. You see, the Passover meal wasn't just about getting full on lamb. It wasn't just about having a Thanksgiving-style feast like we have. It was about remembering a spiritual accomplishment of God on our behalf. And so Jesus would have gone through those same rituals with his disciples. One of them would have asked Jesus, what do we mean by this meal? What makes this night different from every other night? And Jesus would have said, we were in slavery in Egypt and now we've been brought out. But I want you to notice, look at verse 17. Jesus brings up another topic as they're dining as the meal is getting underway. And this topic is not about Egypt. What does he say? Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of the twelve. You'll betray me. You will hand me over to my enemies. To the evil folks and forces that are trying to kill me. One of you will do it. I will go to the cross, but I will go at one of your hands. Now, you might say, well, I thought Jesus wanted to have a happy celebratory meal with his disciples before he died. This is the last supper, after all, the last time he's going to be with them on earth. Why does he bring this up? What do you think? Well, I think, maybe you can think about this and process it a little bit. I think he wants to teach his disciples the meaning of the new Passover meal that he's about to institute. Here's what I mean. 
It is one thing to be in slavery and bondage in Egypt and to have God come in with a mighty hand and all the plagues and such and get you out. That was great. That was huge. It is an even greater thing to know that we're in slavery and bondage to sin and to have the Son of God come and give up his life to get us out of that. And so Jesus brings up sin, and he brings it up in a personal way. Sin is betrayal. One of you will betray me. Later on, he says, all of you are going to leave me one way or the other. One of you is going to betray me, but all of you are going to be unfaithful to me in just hours' time. He wants to confront them with the reality of their sin. Almost as if to say, why is it that I need to give you my body broken? Why is it that I need to pour my blood out for you? Why am I going to do that on the cross? Because you are slaves of a different kind. You are slaves of a different kind. Not physical, but spiritual slaves. That's what sin does. It gets into our lives and it makes us where we can't think, we can't make decisions, we can't do anything without sin affecting it. Have you ever noticed that? Paul says it this way, when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. Can anybody relate to that? You're trying to do something good and right, and you lose your temper. Or you say the thing that you regret. It's always there in us. It's always infecting us. And apart from Jesus Christ, that, the relationship between us and sin is one of a slave and a master, an overlord. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is announcing that he is coming into the world to set us free from that. But what that means is, in order to come to Jesus, and in order to come to his table and eat his supper, you have to ask the question the disciples ask, is it I? And you have to be willing to answer that question, why, yes, it is. It is I. Who put you there, Jesus, on the cross? Whose sins caused your suffering, Lord Jesus? Is it I? Yes, it is I. In myself, a slave. In myself, a traitor, a betrayer. And yet, coming to you, Lord Jesus, for your strong arm to deliver me and rescue me. And so preparation for the Lord's Supper ought to always include self-examination like this. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come to the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Use serious thought, serious meditation, serious prayer. Evaluate your sins. Evaluate your ver the various things that you lack. And come to Jesus hungry when you come to the table. Not hungry for physical food, hungry for Jesus. And y'all, the only way to work up a good hunger for Jesus is to be convinced of the depths of sin and misery. We tend to think of sin very loosely in our culture. We either think of it as a trivial thing, kind of an outdated category. It's just what people like me talk about in order to guilt trip everybody else. We tend to think that way. It's a preacher thing. Or we take it seriously, but we think it's somebody else's problem. Sin is serious. Yep, there are betrayers, but that's just Judas, right? That's just that guy. Or that's just the murderer. 
or the thief or the rapist or whatever. The, the worst people that we can think of, we think, that's their problem, not mine. And yet notice, Jesus doesn't say, even when they ask, is it I? He doesn't say, well, it's not you, it's not you, it's not you, it's not you. It's he doesn't give them that assurance here, not yet anyway. Instead, he lets it hang. He says, well, one of you. Is it I? It's one of you. So that they will not try to uncomfortably wiggle out of the very uncomfortable position of thinking about their faults and their needs that only Jesus can fill. So with us, before the supper, examine yourself. Now secondly, let's look at what happens during this first communion. That's what it is there in verses 22 to 25. Jesus administers the first Lord's Supper. Now you've got to understand a little bit about the Passover meal to get what's going on because the Passover meal had several stages and it still does today. If you go to a Jewish Seder, you'll see this. They drink four cups of wine throughout the meal, four cups, separate cups. And each cup means something a little bit different. And in between the cups, they have another part of the meal that they do. And it seems like um, verses 17 to 21 deal with the first two cups and the eating of the lamb and the eating of the bitter herbs and the dipping of the bread into this like fruit sauce. It's kind of like a fruit chutney that they have and they dip the bread in and eat it. And all that's supposed to symbolize all the different things about slavery in Egypt and how God redeemed them out. But then you come to the, the, the end of the supper, the third cup and the fourth cup of wine. And that's not, that wasn't a big deal in the, in, in the Passover Seder. It was kind of like a background thing. Basically, after you ate all that lamb, you shared another loaf of bread, you drank another cup of wine, and you got ready to go out. It was the departing gift, basically. And yet Jesus turns the, the, the background parting gift into the main thing. It, it's like the lamb and all the bitter herbs and stuff fade to the background, and here comes this normal loaf of bread and this normal glass of wine that's left, and it becomes the foreground of the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus assigns to it a new meaning connected to his death. Tim Keller, who always has a good way of uh, putting things, says it like this. In none of the Gospels is the lamb mentioned, like the lamb that's on the table. And it's not because they didn't have one. It's just because the writers don't even care about it. It's like they skip over that and only focus on the bread and the wine. And he has this way of saying it. He says, the lamb is not on the table because the lamb was at the table. And I like that, right? Um, it'll preach, as we say. The lamb was not on the table because the lamb was at the table. Here is the lamb of God sitting there with them. And so instead of making a big deal about this roasted sacrificial lamb, he makes a big deal about his own body, in his own blood, which just in hours' time was going to be crucified for them. And it says he took the bread and he blessed it, he broke it, a very illustrative act to show that his life was going to be ripped from him. And then he distributed it to each one and, and he announced that to eat this is spiritually to eat his body by faith. And then he took the cup and the same thing, this cup is my blood. And again, illustrative, he poured it out. His blood was going to release from his body in great quantities. And the blood, he says, was poured out as a blood of the covenant. This is Old Testament sacrificial Passover language. The animal has been sacrificed for me. 
uh, the blood of the covenant poured out for many. That word for actually there in verse 24 is the word in the place of. It's the word hyper in Greek. Which, think about a hyperlink. What's a hyperlink on a computer? It's a thing that stands for the website beyond itself so that when you click on the link, it takes you to the thing. It takes you to the website. Jesus is saying this blood, this this. This uh, body that I'm going to give up is like a hyperlink to God. It's like I am, I am taking your place so that by coming through me, you'll get to God. And it's only by coming through me that you'll get to God. And so take it, all of you, eat it. Take it, all of you, drink it, and be assured. Now think about this. Before verse 22, how assured are the disciples? As they're going through the process of self-examination, how, how good do they feel? Scale of one to ten. Maybe one. I'm thinking not very high. They're, they're looking around at each other. Is it me? Is it you? Who knows? We're all traitors. What? This is crazy. Uh, he's not being very encouraging. Wow, he's in a mood. I mean, they're thinking about, and they're probably, this is human things they're thinking, right? That they're pro- their minds are spinning. Is somebody going to barge in at any time and arrest us? I mean, they've got all these thoughts. And yet Jesus comes and ministers a special kind of assurance. Because he doesn't say, listen to this, this is so important. He does not say, take, this is your faith. Eat of it, all of you. He doesn't say about the the wine, this wine symbolizes your commitment to God. Drink of it and be encouraged. Instead, he says... This is about what I am about to do for you, in your place, your hyperlink, your substitute, not you working, but me working for you. And this is is really the heart of Christianity, isn't it? Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is not in our own commitment to God. Sometimes we get it backwards that way. We start to think that. My faith is in my faith. And so we start thinking, do I have faith? Do I have enough faith? How's my faith? Weak or strong? Hot or cold? Is it better than them or worse than them? How do I get more faith? And, and listen, you should want stronger faith, of course. You should always be growing in faith. But our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. In fact, what is faith? If I could illustrate it, it's this. You see it? What's in my hand? Nothing. Nothing. My hands are simply open, empty, to receive what somebody else might put there. That's faith. So why would I boast in that? Or think about it this way. My faith is this. Help! Just a cry of help. Why would I trust? Why would my trust be in my desperation? Is it not true that desperation trusts in the one who responds to the desperation? Is that not a better way to go about life? And that's what Jesus is teaching us in communion. He is illustrating before our eyes and actually in a way that we can touch, we can literally taste it and smell it, this vividness of what he did in our place. So that when we come to him, we, we, we check at the door any tendency to rest our faith in us.
or, by the way, in any other thing or in any other person. Just Jesus. Just bread, his body. Just a cup of wine, his blood. That's it. Simple. Now think about it. See, say, well, what's the big deal about this? If your faith is just in your faith, it's a little bit like being on a boat and anchoring it to something that is not as strong as the boat. What if I pulled up to shore with Bob, Captain Bob, and we anchored the boat to a bounce house on the shore? There was a bounce house there, and we threw the anchor onto that. What would happen? Probably would, might pop the bounce house, but, but even if it didn't, even if it caught on the bounce house, what's going to happen? It's, the boat is going to pull that thing with it rather than the other way around because the boat is stronger than that. I'll give you another Polk County analogy. What if you're stuck in the mud in your truck? <laughs> and you take the other end of the, the winch, you know, and you tie it to a tree that is only a year old, a small little sprig, and you start winching. What happens? You rip the tree right out of the ground. I mean, there's, no, there's not enough strength there. That's what happens. If you think religion is about your works, or if you think religion is about your decisions, or religion is about your acts of great faith, or anything that you do, you are tying to something not as strong as your sin. And you'll rip it out of the ground. And so communion reminds us, only my body, only my blood, not yours, not yours, you may have to spill your blood for me. You may have to have your body broken as my disciple, sure, but it will not save you. Only mine. Anchor there. As one of the great Puritan writers says, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Have you ever heard that? For every one look you take at sin and your weakness and your lack, take ten looks at Jesus. And so though Jesus encourages people to, to come to communion examining themselves, I want you to notice that he even serves this supper to 12 men who are all going to abandon him within hours. The Lord's Supper is for sinners, folks. Amen? It's for sinners. If it were not, these men would not been able to, they would not been able to take communion. And yet Jesus gives it to them because he knows this, and we ought to know it too. A sinner needs to anchor outside of himself in something stronger than himself or herself. And when they do, there's staying power to that. Yes, examine yourself. Yes, take looks at your sin and know it honestly, but be sure, take 10 looks at Jesus. Come hungry for Jesus. Come ready to experience the assurance of his death in your place. Let's look lastly at the third thing. What happens after the supper? You can see that there in verses 26 to 31. Uh, let's look at what the disciples did with Jesus. First of all, it says in verse 26, they sang a hymn. Um, it, actually, the, it says they hymned. 
It's a verb, not a noun there. They hymned. Uh, most people agree. This is referring to Psalms 113 to 118, uh, what were known as the Hallel Psalms. Uh, y'all heard of the word hallelujah? Hallelujah is the Hebrew word for praise the Lord. So Hallel means praise. Uh, number 113 to 118 are called Hallel because they all begin and end with praise, and they talk about praise. The reason why they think that's what they sung is because that's what the Jews have always sung during the Passover. They sang 113 to 118. They still do it today. Throughout the service, they sing those, those set of psalms. And I'll encourage you. I, I don't have time right now to read them all to you. I'd encourage you to go read them at home because it's very, it makes for very interesting reading if you think about this scene because they tell a story about how Israel was in slavery, got delivered out, and yet now a new person of God is going to go to even deeper despair, is going to go down into the depths, and yet God is going to hear their cry and lift them out, and they're going to say, Hallelujah. And they're going to gather all of God's people together and say, Hallelujah. I mean, it's a transcript, really, of what Jesus was about to go through. And so they sang with all their hearts in praise to God, those great hymns from the Bible that were appointed to be sung at the Passover. But I want you to notice what happens next. Joy, 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 joy. And then what does Jesus do? Verse 27, he gives the benediction. You will all fall away. How's that for a benediction? I mean, just think about it. What if I came up at the end of service today and say, all of y'all are going to betray Jesus this week. Go in peace. How would that feel? Well, somebody last service said, well, it would be true. <laughs> and that, that is, it would be true. But it wouldn't seem encouraging Would it? Let's pay closer attention to what Jesus says, though. Because it is encouraging. It is a benediction. You will all fall away, for it is written. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Who gets struck? The shepherd. Why do the sheep scatter? Because the shepherd is struck. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 13. The shepherd is struck in place of the sheep. He takes the danger for the sheep. The sheep go free. And so although the disciples are going to all deny him and they're all going to go and hide out of fear, yet Jesus is still saying, I'm still your shepherd and I'm going to be struck for you. Which is why he follows it up with an even more encouraging statement. Verse 28. But after I am raised, you see, I'm going to be struck, but yet I'm going to be raised afterwards. And then I will go before you into Galilee. I will go before you. I'll be your shepherd and I'll lead you just like sheep are following the shepherd. When I die, you'll be scattered. But when I rise again, I will gather you back to myself and lead you where I want you to go. And you will follow. Now, folks, that's a benediction. That's a special kind of benediction. Straight from Jesus. 
You are not the one to save yourself, he's saying, but I will save you. And I will gather you. You don't know how to be faithful to me, but I will be faithful to the death for you. Be assured. Go forth from this meal with with a special sense of joy and awe and amazement, he says. Now, we, we, we read here, Peter doesn't quickly pick that up. I mean, Peter actually takes it in a very different direction that he ought not to have taken it because he just now wants to double down. No, I'm not going to abandon you. You're not talking about me, surely. That wasn't right. And yet Jesus is encouraging something that I think is right, not just for them, but for every one of us when we come to worship and especially when we come to the communion table. Do you know that when you eat certain foods, you can tell that you've eaten them for a while after? Because you take on the smell. Uh, I, I can't, one of my favorite places to go eat is Peebles Barbecue. My wife always knows when I've been to Peebles. You smell like smoke, you smell like barbecue. I think it's a glorious smell. I wish they could bottle it. But she always knows what you've been to Peebles. Similarly, you might eat Italian food and the garlic, right? It stays with you for a long time. You, you've been to Olive Garden or wherever. You've been to Carabas, I know. <laughs> Certain meals carry a fragrance. What Jesus is showing here is that his supper, his table, ought to give our lives a unique fragrance. It's actually a a strange fragrance compared to the other fragrances of this world. Uh, It's a fragrance that the world will not understand. In fact, it's a fragrance you can only get by communing with Jesus. Let me describe it. Sobriety and joy together. The world says you got to get unsober to get joyful. And the more unsober you get, the more joyful you'll become. Jesus says, you will betray me sober. But when I am raised, I will go before you. Joy. Same time. It's humility and assurance. The world says, man, I can't be confident until I'm arrogant and self-assured. I can't be bold unless I don't have a broken heart anymore and don't feel my own weaknesses anymore. Jesus says, no, it's perfectly consistent for my people to have a broken heart and rejoice at the same time. It's perfectly consistent for my people Perfectly consistent for them to be humble before the Lord and yet confident and bold in the Lord. I will be struck. You won't be. You can't be struck for yourself. You can't pay the debt that you owe, but I'll pay it for you. I'll be struck. You'll be scattered. Humility. And yet, I will go before you into Galilee. Hallelujah. 
There is a fragrance that comes out of living the Christian life with Jesus. And that's what the communion table is about. It's about coming to have fellowship and communion with Jesus where the sensible signs of bread and wine are used by the Holy Spirit to communicate to us spiritual things, things that can't be seen. His body, his blood shared with us. His spirit given to us. And when we come to that and when we experience the fellowship with Jesus that flows out of that, our lives ought to have this kind of very unique fragrance. Think opposite of what Peter does. See, Peter's thinking just like the world at this point. He's thinking, if I'm going to be confident, I've got to be self-confident. And so I'm going to say it. I will never betray you. I'll, I'll die. I gotta, I gotta, if I'm going to be joyful, I must be unsober. And so I'm going to say the most unsober thing I've ever said. And yet what Jesus is trying to give through his benediction and through the hymns that they're singing is no, it's always been consistent with the people of God to be humble and bold at the same time. This has always been the thing. A broken-hearted, joyful people. A sober, rejoicing people. A serious and loving people. What a strange mixture of things. And yet what a beautiful aroma it is, isn't it? Let's ask the Lord to minister that aroma to us every single week, but especially as we think ahead to next week in our observance of the Lord's Supper. Give it some thought. What aroma God might want your life to have.